The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. The Senate has its third president in less than a year, but we'd known about Karen Spilka's planned ascension to the rostrum since she announced this spring that she had the votes. Katie Lannon, Spilka gave her inaugural speech on Thursday. Did she tip her hand on any policy priorities? Well, as you say, Sam, certainly everyone in the Senate knew Karen Spilka and knew she was going to be the Senate president. Um, But her speech was heavy on her her personal background, kind of an introduction to who she is and what is meaningful to her. She talked about her grandfather who fled Russia after a friend he protested with was hanged um, in the context of a generous immigration policy allowed their family to flourish here. She talked about her father, a World War II veteran who suffered from undiagnosed mental illness and what that taught her about the need for comprehensive veteran services, for supporting children in difficult conditions, for eradicating the stigma around mental health and establishing full mental health parity here in the Commonwealth. That's a official lingo, mental health parity in the Commonwealth. Um, and she talked about her sister Susie with Down syndrome um, and what her relationship with her sister taught her about the importance of having people fulfill their economic potential. Her sister loved getting her paycheck each week. And when people are kind of in that role, uh, Senate President Spilka said, they can be more independent and they won't need to be involved in the criminal justice system. They won't be as vulnerable. And finally, she also talked about fairness and education funding and how that is what spurred her to run for office initially. Did she reference any specific uh, pieces of legislation? So interestingly, even though she talked about how important education funding is to her, she didn't mention the education funding bill that's in conference committee right now. But she did mention a bill the Senate's already passed that allows uh, you to select a non-binary gender of X when you apply for a driver's license. And she she got sort of a rolling standing ovation when she said she was confident that measure would make it into law. You saw the senators and the other supporters of that stand up first. Some of the reps didn't really seem to know if they should stand right <laughs> away, but eventually you saw everyone join in and applaud that Delio line. Stood up. That's right. The speaker and the governor both. Right. So stay tuned there, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks very much, Katie. Have thanks, a good Sam. Weekend. You too. When Karen Spilka took the helm of the Senate on Thursday, it was with five days left in formal legislative sessions. It was unusual timing for such a switch, and Mike Norton is here to talk about what happened next. Here's how Spilka ended her first session on Thursday. The ayes have it, and the Senate stands adjourned to meet again on Monday next at 10.30 in a full formal session without a calendar. With that bang of the gavel, Sam, the Senate surprised Beacon Hill, most notably House leadership, by going out of session for three days and leaving all the remaining work, and there's plenty of it, to be resolved on Monday and Tuesday. Spilka may have been motivated by a decision announced about an hour or so earlier when Baker administration officials made clear that it would only take 48 votes to undo about $49 million in budget vetoes. And with that, legislative leaders realized they'd be able to handle that task in minutes or hours, not days. Over in the House, the decision to leave for three days did not go over well. House leaders learned about it through the media. That's not their favorite way to find out about things. 
And while Speaker Robert DeLeo made clear that he doesn't necessarily share Spilka's belief that all of the major bills, budget vetoes, budget amendments, that it can all be handled in two sessions, well, the House ended up breaking for the weekend as well late Friday after racing through a few million dollars worth of vetoes, passing compromise bills on automatic voter registration and environmental spending and veterans benefits. So how are things shaping up for Monday and Tuesday, Mike? Well, one rule the House and Senate have upheld over the years requires them to adjourn formal sessions for the year by midnight on July 31st during election years. It's that deadline, the fact that major bills are still hung up in conference committees, and the fact that lawmakers delivered the budget late this year, that's the reason that's going to set up for trying times in the legislature. Both branches met only twice in formal sessions this week, in part because conference committee reports, they're not ready on bills dealing with clean energy, health care, animal welfare, education funding, and short-term rental regulation. The branches passed major opioid addiction and economic development bills, but they did so so late in the session that those measures will need to be resolved through a tricky informal process rather than the usual conference committee. So despite all the hullabaloo overtaking the weekend off from sessions, the action still centers on the same issues. Whether negotiators can finish their work, what makes it into the bills and what gets cut, whether lawmakers will have days, hours, or even just minutes to review compromises before voting on them, and how the major policy proposals will be received by Governor Baker, who has really been a reliable bill-signing machine of late. We'll be watching. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Sam. Whether the voters realize it or not, Governor Baker is running for re-election this year, and he's said he won't campaign until after the end of formal sessions, and that starts next Wednesday. But Matt Murphy, I'm wondering if the governor is actually refraining from politics during these busy days on Beacon Hill. Well, thanks, Sam, and you're right. Uh, the governor has said that he's going to wait until the end of these formal legislative sessions to turn his attention to his re-election campaign. And he was able to do that really because of his strong poll numbers, and those were reaffirmed again this week, the new morning consult poll out, finding the governor again to be the most popular governor in the country with a 69% approval rating. But uh, just this week, if you look, when the governor signed this budget and the way he spoke about it, the governor is talking more about just a $41.7 billion spending plan. He put a lot of the items in this budget in the context of what he's accomplished from the day he walked into this office to today, half a billion dollars in education over those three years, a reduction from $1.2 billion in one-time expenditures used to balance the budget down to less than 100 a rainy day fund that is at its highest level now since 2007 with this budget, it'll eclipse $2 billion. So the governor clearly trying to project a message of what he's accomplished over not just this year, but his three plus years in office. So do you expect the governor, when he does actually start campaigning in earnest, to focus on his primary opponent, Scott Lively, or is he going to be looking ahead to the general election? Well, I think you saw a, a clear indication this week that the governor really focused on appealing to those moderate independents and Democrats who helped propel him to the corner office in the first place and are going to be critical to his reelection. He, it's no accident that he staged a major event this week to sign the so-called Nasty Women Act, which would repeal the archaic anti-abortion laws that have been on the books in Massachusetts, some of them since the 1800s. Uh, the governor's administration pointed out and 
advertised a letter that he sent to the administration pushing back against the Trump administration's efforts to cut funding to family planning clinics. And the governor withheld his signature, one of just three governors in the country, not to sign a letter urging Congress to back the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. So the governor clearly looking past his primary opponent and focused on those moderate voters that he's going to need in November. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. There's one bill that's once again made it close to the goal line with just a couple of days of formal sessions left, but the future is uncertain for the effort to legalize something called community benefit districts. Andy Metzger, we've talked about this issue before, but what are the latest twists and turns on the so-called CBD bill? Uh, well, if this legislative process were a roller coaster, now would be the time when everyone is throwing up their hands and screaming because it, there have been a lot of twists and turns. Um, it's been moving a little fast, although it's come to a abrupt halt as well in the House. Um, I'll end the analogy there. But what <laughs> I can tell you about the bill is that it, it would be similar to business improvement districts, but easier to create these community benefit districts and how it would work is property owners could draw a geographical boundary and then with sign off from the city council start charging fees to people who own property within that boundary um, those would pay for sidewalk planners and the like whatever they decide to to use it for um, now some ideological adversaries from the left and right have come together to oppose this bill and so now it has become a real open question about whether it will again reach the governor's desk, even though both the House and Senate have passed it. So who's against this now on, on the right and the left? And and who needs to support it for the bill to move forward? Uh, well, proponents need to hope that Governor Baker agrees with his economic development secretary that this is a good bill. Um, they also need the House to take action on it. The House previously passed it by a margin of 149 to 2. The margin was much slimmer in the Senate, uh, 22 to 15. So if the governor does veto it, um, that veto could be sustained in the Senate. Um, and then on the other side, you have this kind of funny coalition that includes Citizens for Limited Taxation, along with City Life, Vita Urbana, who all have signed on to a letter um, opposing it. Then you have House Minority Leader Brad Jones and Secretary of State William Galvin, who have both flagged concerns about the bill. And finally, you've got a few uh, liberal Democrats in the House who have been making sure that this bill does not sneak across during an informal session. Right. The vote was 149 to 2 in the House last time, but some folks, like the minority leader, have said they've been rethinking their position on the bill, right? That's right. Uh, it's unclear what the vote—I know of at least one vote that would be moved from the yes to the no. That would be Mike Connolly, a Democrat from Cambridge. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Sam. The Cannabis Control Commission more than doubled the number of approved marijuana licenses this week, authorizing retail locations in Amesbury, Brookline, and Northampton, and okaying two more pot farms. Retail stores didn't open by the July 1st target date, and they won't open by August 1st either. Colin Young, you reported this week that the CCC tried to address one of the issues that's been blamed for the slow rollout of the legal pot market. Uh, what's the issue, and uh, what are they trying to do about it, Colin? Yeah, Sam, the issue is with the host community agreements that state law requires marijuana licensees to enter into with the towns and cities that they plan to be located in. Uh, the state law requires uh, these agreements be be agreed to. 
uh, and it stipulates that the agreements can't run for any more than five years and that the community impact fee paid to the municipality by the licensee can't exceed 3% of the establishment's gross sales. And the law also states that these fees uh, have to be reasonably related to the costs imposed on the municipality by the marijuana business. The issue here is that the CCC won't even consider an application for a marijuana business license uh, until that host community agreement has been agreed to. So the cities and towns really have a lot of leverage over the businesses here because if the city or town doesn't uh, sign off on that agreement, the business can't even apply for a license. Uh, CCC Chairman Steve Hoffman said the question of what can and can't be included as these in these host community agreements has created confusion on both sides. And Commissioner Jen Flanagan said host community agreements have been a very contentious issue throughout the Commonwealth. So on Thursday, the CCC issued uh, a guidance document for municipalities and licensees, or applicants rather, uh, going over exactly what can and cannot be part of these host community agreements. So what are the next steps here for regulators? So the CCC uh, published that guidance Thursday, and they're going to solicit public comments on it uh, until 5 p.m. on Monday, August 6th. Then at their next meeting, which would be Thursday, August 9th, the commission plans to go over uh, the feedback that they get on their guidance and to decide uh, really what their uh, course of action is going to be. There's still some question out there uh, as to what uh, enforcement power the CCC has uh, over cities and towns or applicants uh, as it relates to host community agreements. So August 1st is coming. One still cannot buy legal pot. Uh, where is the CCC in the licensing process overall? And uh, are we getting close to having stores open in Massachusetts? Well, um, as you said off the top, Sam, the, the CCC more than doubled the number of licenses that it's, uh, or applications that it's approved, and at this point they're provisional licenses. Uh, but still, they, the commission hasn't yet considered an application for an independent testing lab. And that's, uh, at this point, the most critical piece of the supply chain because every gram of marijuana sold in Massachusetts legally uh, must first be tested and approved by one of these labs. So without a lab, you know, the CCC could license all the retail shops and all the uh, cultivation facilities it wants to, but without one of those labs, nothing can open. All right. Thanks, Colin. Have a good weekend. Thanks a lot, Sam. You too. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.